Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, France, and a twofer see you in hell. That's two dead right-wing figures, one of them from Germany and the other one from the United States. First off, in the United States, this is the sort of thing that comes out in the news all the time, but you know, I, I thought it was important to highlight this particular one. Uh, a man in Vermont has been found with a bunch of pipe bombs and firearms, which he is not legally allowed to have because of a prior felony conviction. Uh, this man is known to have been extremely racist. He has expressed uh, racial hatred and racially motivated threats and threats of violence specifically against not just people in general, but his neighbors. Uh, he has been arrested because of his possession of these improvised explosive devices. Now, this is the sort of thing that just is happening all the time, right? Uh, and I think it's important to highlight this particular one because we have to remember that this kind of violence and the possibility of this violence is always lurking behind the scenes. Additionally, in the United States, Alex Jones, the provocateur, propagandist, and if you believe him, satirist, um, has been found to be on the hook for legal fees regarding the suit against him by the parents of children who were murdered in the Sandy Hook massacre. Now, Alex Jones is famous in part because he famously denied that the Sandy Hook massacre occurred. You know, he said that it was a fake and that the people whose children were murdered in it were in fact actors and that all of this was being orchestrated by the government in order to reduce gun ownership or in order to create a moral panic that would enable the government to get more power. When on trial for these claims, you know, for spreading these libelous claims, Alex Jones is his defense was literally that his program is fake, uh, that his program is satirical, and that anybody who watches it should believe that it is fake and that he is playing a character um, and that, that it's essentially performance art, right? And so, therefore, that he can't be on the hook for any libel like this. Essentially, his claim is that he's, he's doing uh, what Stephen Colbert did on the Colbert Report, right? Obviously, this is not true, however. Alex Jones is a very popular figure, on the right wing today, and he precisely fits exactly this sort of like fake, ironic posture that we see on the right wing across the spectrum. Uh, this sort of like 4chan tongue in cheek racism, which is, of course, not really tongue in cheek. That's the claim in order to be able to continue to engage in these kinds of speech acts. So, anyway, Alex Jones has been found uh, to be on the hook for $1 million in legal fees for several parents whose children were murdered in the Sandy Hook massacre. Moving on to our ongoing updates regarding the January 6th attempted coup from last year, there is more and more evidence weekly of conspiracy and awareness on the part of Republican party members and members of Congress about like the solidity of the plan to overthrow the government. For example, we now know that there were several congresspersons in contact with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who were literally asking Mark Meadows, like, what am I supposed to say about this coup? What am I supposed to say about the election, uh, you know, the election in January of 2020? How are we going to talk about this in such a way as to make people believe that it would be legitimate for the president to overturn the election? This is evidence of a coordinated push by some in the Republican Party to orchestrate the coup effort. You know, uh, it also indicates their knowledge of the plan to not certify the election 
and the legal ins and outs of this claim, you know, that the election was fake and all the means by which Trump and his allies might be able to prevent the certification of Joe Biden's victory over him in November of 2020. One Democratic congressperson uh, named Raskin, uh, who is a member of the Select Committee on the January 6th attempted coup, has now gone on record literally saying that it's clear to him and several other people on the committee that January 6th was a self-coup, you know, that it was an autogolpe in a classical sense, that it is now the opinion of the people on this committee that Trump was trying to stage a coup. That is some serious shit. That means that there are Democrats who are on the record saying the president was trying to stage a coup. The fact that they're hoping to prove this, you know, that they're hoping to potentially bring Trump and some of his allies to justice, you know, they might want to seek trial for some of these people. And this is because, again, there are a lot of people on this select committee investigating the January 6th attempted coup that are now convinced that Trump was orchestrating a coup and that if the coup had succeeded, he would have used the Insurrection Act and not allowed Biden's certification uh, to have gone through, and that he might have even declared martial law, like just straight up normal coup stuff, and that this might have happened in the United States if a couple people had run down a few different hallways. And if that doesn't scare you, I don't know it will. Additionally, on the front of the ongoing efforts to understand more about exactly what happened on January 6th, we now have more and more evidence that there was coordination amongst the armed right-wing groups that were present at the Capitol building that day. Specifically, we now know a lot more about coordination between the two biggest of the fascist groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Now, the Proud Boys, as I've talked about many times on this podcast, are a sort of classic fascist youth gang. You know, they, they're, they're organized like a gang. They have rights of violence. The Oath Keepers present themselves as a, well, originally they presented themselves as a sort of veterans affiliation organization, right? You know, people who say that they're going to keep their oath, quote, uh, to the United States and to defend the United States' people and its constitution, etc., right? Coordination amongst these groups was going on a lot before the day of January 6th. We now know from a lot of text conversations that have been released, partly through investigation and partly through the cooperation of the various people involved in the coup who have been found guilty or who have pled guilty and are now cooperating with the prosecution. So there's evidence of text cooperation between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, you know, for example, checking in when they found out that Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, was arrested on January 4th before he could try to participate in this coup. We also know that they were speaking with Roger Stone and Ali Alexander, who are normal Trump right-wing go-betweens, you know, people who engage in dialogue with the extreme right on behalf of the Trump political machine. We even know that they were talking about specific Republicans in the House and the Senate who it might be necessary to protect, right? So these are Oath Keepers and Proud Boys saying like, hey, we're, we're going to bring this armed mob into Congress, but some of our allies are in there. You know, you know, we don't want those people to get swamped. We don't want them to get hurt. So they were discussing providing security for these people, right? These are fascist organizations talking about like, hey, if we invade the Capitol building and try to overthrow the government, we have to protect our people, right? They, they, were, they were going to stand in for the security forces of the United States. This is like 
This is fascist coup stuff that's happening. This is extremely important, this coordination, for tightening the narrative of January 6th as a planned attack. Obviously, anybody who's been paying attention to this, and if you were just like thinking about it the day of, we all know that it was planned. We know it was coordinated. The question is, for the Democrats in the uh, January 6th committee at least, can it be proved in court? And unfortunately, shy of a mass political movement that wants to bring people to justice, that's probably all the United States is going to see as far as political reckoning for this, unless we get some sort of like actual, you know, memory or truth and reconciliation committee that comes. But unfortunately, that, you know, that sort of thing usually takes a couple of decades uh, to figure out and to really shake out. So it's things like this, it's revelations like this about these sorts of details that are vital for finding justice for attempted coups like this. Moving on to France, there is a French presidential election this week, and it's happening this weekend on Sunday. It is the runoff from the previous French presidential election round in which the incumbent, Emmanuel Macron, finished first. And his previous opponent in the runoff uh, back in his election year, uh, Marianne Le Pen, finished second. Now, this election will just be the two of them, not with the rest of the people who ran in this presidential election. Marianne Le Pen is a member of an extreme right-wing French party. Not the most extreme possible, but about as extreme as you can get and be a mainstream political party in France. Macron is a centrist in the French political system. He is a member of a new political party that essentially formed around his candidacy. Currently, polls show that Macron would win and that he would win by about 10 points. That's about 10%. But there have been no polls after the most recent debate, which was done today, Wednesday, April 20th, of the day that I'm recording this podcast. So we're going to have to see if the debate changed any of those numbers. Additionally, those of you who lived through the 2016 presidential elections might want to take uh, polls that say a right-wing political candidate can't win with, you know, a couple grains of salt. The debate focused on essentially the issues that you would expect, uh, namely Ukraine and Russia, with Macron accusing Le Pen of being soft on Russia or, you know, abandoning Ukraine or abandoning Europe to Russian invasion, you know, precisely the same category of attack that people in the United States give against people like Trump, you know, saying that, you know, she's a Russian puppet or that she has uh, money that she owes to Russian banks, things like that. It is true that uh, Le Pen does, in fact, owe money to a Russian bank and that she has suggested that France should not be as involved in NATO and that they should, like, not just completely turn their backs on Russia. That is, in fact, her position. However, that is not the core of her politics. The core of her politics is a right-wing reactionary platform, which contemporary analysts say that, you know, despite her claims of having moderated a little bit, uh, isn't actually all that different from the platform of her father, who was an out, anti-Semitic, Holocaust-denying, like, fascist man, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. So Le Pen's platform is a little bit more palatable than that. You know, she couches it in much more contemporary and legible terms. However, she is anti-immigration. She is anti-queer rights. She is a proponent of a certain amount of government spending uh, for like 
welfare and social programs, but specifically for the people that she wants to receive those programs. Whereas Macron is a classic neoliberal. You know, he promises little and delivers less. So we will have to see exactly how this election shakes out. I will give you an update next week. Finally, going to close out this episode as I do every week with See When Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. We got a twofer this week. One comes from Germany and the other one comes from the United States. Starting with Germany, we have Karl Haas, a German spy and mass murderer. Karl Haas was born in Kiel, which is in northern Germany. And after the Nazis took over the country, he joined the SS and specifically its intelligence branch. He was stationed in Italy by the SS, where he was involved in the deportation of Jewish people to uh, Holocaust sites, to um, mass deportation and mass murder sites. He is specifically known for his involvement in the um, Ardiatin massacre, which was a revenge massacre involving the killing of Italian prisoners in response to the Italian resistance's bombing of a German military base in 1944. He was captured by the Allies, uh, but instead of being put on trial for his crimes, uh, he was recruited as a spy. Although he, there was some suspicion that he might have been a double agent on the part of the Soviets, and so that part of his life ended uh, only about a decade after he became a spy for the United States. However, he continued to not face any justice for his involvement in this massacre uh, until 1994, where he was extradited to Italy because of the confession of his uh, co-massacre perpetrator, uh, a man named Pripke, who I've spoken of previously on this podcast. So he was extradited to Italy, found guilty for his crimes. Uh, However, he was considered to be too old to face jail time, and so he was put under house arrest and died this week in history in an alpine villa on the 21st of April, 2004. The second person I want to talk about this week is William A. Rusher, who was the publisher of the National Review, one of the most important conservative magazines in the history of the United States. Rusher was an extremely influential conservative intellectual, business person, lawyer, and publisher, as I said. He was specifically instrumental in getting Goldwater on the Republican ballot in 1964, which is a watershed moment for the new right and conservatism in general in the United States. Russia, like many people in what was originally called the New Right, you know, the the wave of conservatism in the 1960s and 70s that remade the Republican Party from a classically liberal party into the conservative party that we know of it today, Russia was an important force in this. And he worked in that vein all his life until ill health forced him to retire sometime in the 21st century. He then spent several years convalescing until his death, This Week in History, the 16th of April, 2011. So, Karl Haas and William Rusher, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please uh, share this on all of your social media. Please share it with friends, family, and comrades. Leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. You can get in touch with me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com, at hist of the right on Twitter, or at fascism15 on Twitter. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.